Our journey in the book of Acts takes us now to Acts chapter 20. So I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn there. Acts chapter 20. And the verses we will examine this morning are verses 17 through 24. Acts chapter 20, beginning with verse 17. Let me read this to you. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel, of the grace of God. When the Spirit of God called me into the pastoral ministry, He gave me an unequivocal model for ministry, and that is the model found in the life of the Apostle Paul. There are certainly many competing gurus out there today, with competing ministry models and methodologies designed to attract large crowds, typically for the wrong reasons. And every week, frankly, I get phone calls. Every single week, I'll get a phone call, an email, a brochure, or something inviting me to hear the latest expert tell me what I need to do to minister to you in this community. There was a USA Today article on religion that I read the other day. The title of it was, At Nations Churches, Guys Are Few in the Pews. So it piqued my attention. And it basically described how that even with the stadium packing promise keepers fad that has now fizzled, as all fads do, research indicates that in evangelical and mainline Protestant churches, women are more likely to attend than men. It was interesting, by the way, there were no statistics for Bible-believing fundamental churches like, like ours. That's certainly not the case in those kinds of churches, as you can look around and see. The article went on to say that hundreds of churches are going for a, quote, guy church vibe, programming for a stereotypical man's man. And they went on to describe what that would look like, how worship centers are being designed for men. No pastels, flowers, sweet music. Instead, they're to have stone floors, hunter green and amber decor, rustic beam ceilings and woodsy scenes on the church website. And pastors are encouraged to, quote, infuse adventure, challenge, boldness, competition, hands-on communication, ferocity, and fun into congregational life, end quote. And described how many congregations have initiated what they call beast feasts, which are nothing more than game banquets trying to appeal to outdoorsmen. And others try to create a high-tech service where the sermons are punctuated, they say, with video skits and music. It was interesting, the writer of the article went on to, to quip, and I quote, if they could pump essence of testosterone into the sanctuary, some churches might try it. 
In fact, one ostensibly Christian men's ministry features videos of karate fights, car chases, and a song with lyrics urging, and here's what the lyrics are, No more nice guy, timid and ashamed. Grab a sword, don't be scared, be a man. And then the rest of the phrase is too vulgar for me to repeat in public. How different than, for example, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 16, beginning in verse 13, where he said, Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. As I read this, I was reminded of my old and departed friend, Dr. Culbertson, who was the former president of Moody Bible Institute. And I served him there in several ways as a young man when I was at Moody. And here's what Dr. Culbertson said that I will never forget. Quote, what you win them with, you win them to. Dear friends, when you try to win people with the things of the world, win them with things of the world that they find appealing, that's what you win them to. But if you win them by the power of the Spirit, with a call to deny themselves, to take up their cross daily and follow Christ. That's what will motivate them all throughout their life until that day comes when they pass through the veil of this life and see their Savior and King face to face. Unfortunately, all these methodological gimmicks totally miss the ministry model that we see all through the New Testament. In fact, Paul's success in ministry, and I might add that his success would not even be considered success in the eyes of the world today, but his success in ministry in God's eyes had nothing to do with methods. It had nothing to do with techniques or clever strategies that would somehow target one group or another. And yet what we see that in the span of a little over three years, the gospel of Jesus Christ spread from Jerusalem all through Asia, all the way to Rome. And instead, what we see is that his success was measured by God, not by man, based upon his Christ-like character, the virtues of his heart that manifested itself in five distinct ways that we will examine this morning. Paul was, number one, a faithful shepherd. Secondly, a humble slave. Thirdly, a suffering servant. Fourthly, a fearless preacher. And finally, a zealous evangelist. And beloved, I would encourage you this morning to measure your lives against the model, the example of the Apostle Paul. I find it interesting. I've yet to see apart from certain shepherding conferences in a few places, I've yet to see the mainstream, mainstream evangelical circles ever present any kind of a seminar or publish a bestseller based on the ministry model of the Apostle Paul. Isn't that interesting? You just don't see that. And of course, if you understand what's going on today, you would realize why. And you're going to see it here in a minute. That particular model requires a man that is willing to suffer, a man who is willing to preach the word boldly. And quite frankly, he is going to have very limited results. People want big crowds, not little crowds. So they tend to widen the gate rather than keeping it narrow. So for the most part, Paul's life and ministry has no appeal to most people today. Today we're going to see these five essential elements that frankly shaped all of his thoughts, all of his actions. Five heart attitudes, again, that you will never find promoted in the church growth movement today. Never find promoted by the experts in these days of laodicea and apostasy. 
And as you join me this morning, as we look at these virtues in the life of the Apostle Paul, I'm sure you will agree that there's some things that really stand out. One in particular that you will be struck with is his exceedingly high standard for a minister of the gospel, one who shepherds the church. Standards that constantly bring conviction to my own heart. That's why Paul even said that he wanted to be an example. It's interesting, Paul emulated the Lord Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus said in John thirteen fifteen, I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. And Paul did this, therefore he... He said with confidence to the Corinthians, verse Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. And again, in 1 Corinthians 4, 16, he said, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. And to the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 17, he said, join in following my example. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Don't you think that the church growth people would pick up on that? Then in chapter 4, verse 9, he says, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace shall be with you. Well, friends, this is the standard that God holds up for every minister of the gospel and, frankly, for every Christian. And we know that Paul even celebrated the lives of the Thessalonian believers because they, according to 1 Thessalonians 1.6, became imitators of us and of the Lord. And he even advised Timothy on how to be a godly pastor, one who was to, according to 1 Timothy 4.12, in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. It's all about modeling. It's all about being an example. But never do you read anything close to this in the modern ministry models. Many of which that would have us believe that somehow we must become like the world in order to win it. Or follow some other example of someone who has been successful in the eyes of the world. So, therefore, you will find people very often calling churches like ours, and I get these calls periodically, inquiring about the church. And it's interesting, the number one first question that most people ask is, what kind of music do you have? Because, frankly, entertainment is the dominant reason why most people go to church these days. If you take away the music, most people wouldn't go. The second question has to do with doctrine. And it's funny how quickly people will hang up on me when they find out that I don't preach out of the King James only. Or that I would allow women to wear slacks or... We don't have head coverings for women or in the, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. In fact, routinely I will hear the question, what do you wear to church? Because it's kind of a big thing today that if you really have a good church, you've got one where you can come as you are. And my response is you can wear whatever you want at our church as long as it's modest and it doesn't distract other people from worship. Those are preference issues. But I'm always quick, and I'll share this with you just before we look at the text. I'm quick to tell people um, that I have a preference, and this is purely a preference. This is not something that I would impose on any of you. But I have a preference, and that is that I will preach only in a coat and tie on Sunday mornings. And the reason for that, I will tell them, is like all cultures, we dress up. For lofty events, for events that are transcendent. I mean, when we have weddings, when we have funerals, uh, presidential inaugurations, those types of things and other transcendent occasions. And for me personally, there is nothing more transcendent. There is nothing more awe inspiring. There is nothing more magnificent to me than worshiping the triune God on the Lord's day. And therefore, I want to look my best. Moreover, as the divinely ordained spokesman of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, I wish to represent him with all the dignity that he deserves. 
And for me, cut off jeans and flip flops and a Hawaiian silk shirt is utterly incongruent with the task that I have to stand up before you and say, thus saith the Lord. I can't imagine a spokesman of the president of the United States coming to address us here today looking like that. Furthermore, I tell people that my preference is not to wear a robe or a special collar that would cause people to somehow look upon me as if I have some superior spiritual status or in any way signify something sacerdotal, or in other words, priestly. I'm merely a man like all of you, and I am not to be worshipped. And one other thing while I'm on this, I will tell people that my preference would be that I never stand before God's people to preach His Word unless I am largely concealed by a large sacred desk called a pulpit. And there is a reason for that. I'm not going to walk around the congregation. I'm not going to stand behind some plexiglass pulpit because I am merely the voice of the Most High God, a bondservant of Christ, an expendable, common, lowly, as Paul said, earthen vessel that contains the glorious treasure of the gospel of Christ. And you must see him, not me. He must increase. I must decrease. Now, by the way, when I share some of these things with people that call in, by that time they think I'm a complete nut and they typically hang up. Well, perhaps you will see how some of these attitudes emerge, at least in my heart, from examining the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, especially here in Acts 20, as we witness him shepherding the shepherds. And that's what I've entitled my discourse to you this morning Here, Paul is shepherding the shepherds of Ephesus. Now, a little bit of context here. Paul has arrived now in Miletus. He's pressed for time. He wants to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. He has been bound in spirit. In other words, informed and compelled by the spirit of God to get there. He's fully aware that bonds and afflictions await him there. But. Because he is pressed for time, he sends for the elders to come to him. It's about 30 miles away. And they come to him and he desires now to share with them some parting thoughts of utmost importance. This would be a very tearful farewell. He knew and they knew that they would never see each other again this side of glory. And frankly, I cannot imagine the pain of what that would be like to stand before you and to tell you goodbye. As a pastor, I find this to be one of the most moving and informative passages in all of the New Testament with respect to pastoral ministry. Because, dear friends, here the Spirit of God allows us to eavesdrop into this tearful goodbye. And in so doing, we learn much about the heart of a faithful shepherd and the priorities of his life and ministry. Many times people will ask me, who's your favorite Bible character? Well, I I have lots of different ones. And it kind of depends upon what the context is. But when it comes to pastoral ministry, it's the Apostle Paul. He's my hero of the faith. My mentor, my example, my role model in ministry. This man that was described by others as being kind of a short, stout, homely guy with a bit of a hunchback and a large nose that wasn't very eloquent when he spoke, but I think of how God used that man. And what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, he said, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. In other words, there were no calculated theatrics. No organ in the background that would punctuate something that he would say. No manipulative, long, emotional altar calls. None of that. He said, I didn't come to you in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. First of all, let's examine 
the first example that we see in the Apostle Paul, that of a faithful shepherd. Beginning in verse 17, again, from Miletus, he says, he, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And Luke goes on to record that when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Now, obviously, dear friends, here we can see that there was a mutual love that Paul had with the elders and the elders for Paul. And of course, this is an essential ingredient in co-laboring together in a church. Paul obviously practiced what he preached and they knew it. And here he focuses upon his life as an example to them, one that they should emulate. And so as we see in this whole text, Paul is going to reflect upon the three years that he has been with them, as well as looking forward to the dangers that will come in the future, not only with respect to his life, but also regarding the inevitable attacks that will occur in the church at Ephesus and, frankly, every New Testament church from that day forward. Paul's life had been transparent to them. He lived with them. They really knew who he was. There was no veneer. There was no hypocrisy. No mystery about him. Most of all, we understand that these people were his spiritual children. And so we can see the love that they had for him. They had grown under his tutelage. They loved their shepherd. They knew that he loved them. They had heard his words of truth. They had no doubt wept with him. They had seen his tears and his concern. They watched the incessant attacks on his character and even on his life. And notice what he says, you yourselves know. In other words, there's no, no mistaking this. There, there's no ambiguity or confusion here. You yourselves know how I was with you the whole time. I thought about this. How can a shepherd tend his flock unless he spends time with them? This denotes a lifestyle of interaction, not one of isolation. A shepherd, as I say, must smell like the sheep. He knew them well, and they knew him well. He knew their strengths, their weaknesses, their besetting sins, their spiritual gifts. He shared their joys and their sorrow, their dreams and their passions. And he wanted nothing from them. The only thing he wanted is for them to know and love and serve the living Christ. How different from the religious wolves in sheep's clothing, those that pretend to be shepherds who seek, seek only to seduce the naive and the ignorant with ear-tickling deceptions. Those that would come into a flock and devour them, fleece them of their time and their treasure and their talent. Well, not so the beloved apostle who came as an example in fact, he said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2 that he came amid much opposition, not from error or impurity or by way of deceit, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. For we never came, he said, with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. He went on to say, but we proved to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children, having thus a fond affection for you. He went on to tell the Thessalonians, you are our witnesses and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Oh, child of God, this is the heart of a faithful shepherd. His whole world is going to orbit around these passions and these priorities because he loves his flock. And whatever he does, wherever he goes, ultimately his heart's desire is to nurture and to lead and to feed and to protect those that he loves. And this is the example he leaves to his beloved 
shepherds there in Ephesus and every other New Testament church. You know, many of you serve here at Calvary Bible Church, and it's an incredible thing. In fact, it's very rare, as I understand it, that to have the vast majority of a church actively involved in ministry. And I'm exceedingly thankful. We all need to be exceedingly thankful for this. But, dear friends, I would encourage you, do not minister to the people here unless you truly love them. Unless you truly love them. Warts and all. And if you truly love them, you know what you're going to do? I mean, what do you do if you truly love someone? You spend time with them. You want to get to know them. You don't live in isolation from them. Love is action, not abstraction. So he was a faithful shepherd. Secondly, he was a humble slave. He said, I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. The term serving is a term that comes from the term doulos, from which we get the word slave, translated slave. Often it's translated bond slave or bond servant. And serving here means to literally carry out the desires and I should say the duties of a slave. That is the person's desire, to carry out those duties of a slave and to serve as a slave. This was Paul's perspective of himself. In fact, you can read in Romans 1.1, he said, Paul, a bond servant or literally a slave of Christ Jesus. That's how he saw himself. Galatians 1.10, he said that he wasn't trying to, to please men because he said, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bond servant or again, a slave of Christ. The metaphor of slavery evoked powerful Imagery in the minds of those ancient people. And for all of us who serve and love the Lord Jesus Christ and see him as we should, as our master, we can see very quickly the parallels of the ancient slave with that of our loving submission to our master. In those days, if you were a slave, you had to be bought with a price. If you were a slave, you were owned by your master and you would even bear the mark of his ownership. If you were a slave, you could not be owned by anyone else and you could not serve two masters. You were controlled completely by your master. You had to obey his commands and his alone. You lived your life to seek only to do his will. As a slave, you give up all of your rights. Your agenda is out. And you are singularly devoted to your master. End of discussion. You have no purpose in life but to make him happy. You seek only to do his good. Again, your ambitions are out. You elevate only your master, not yourself. You're loyal totally to him and him alone. You seek to honor him in all that you do and say. And you are utterly dependent upon him to provide and protect you. That's what it means to be a Christian. You know, that's a tough sell these days. And it's a far cry from those that would say, come to Jesus so that he can make you healthy, wealthy and wise. Or give you some purpose in your life so that you can feel good about yourself and be successful. All of this, of course, the gospel of neo-evangelicalism. You know, as Christians, it's real simple. Jesus is Lord. Curios. He is Lord. He is, in other words, master. And we are his doulos, his slaves. That's it. That's the essence of Christianity. For this reason, Paul reminds them that he served the Lord with all humility. In other words, with unpretentious, self-effacing behavior, he was totally submitted to the master's will. He was the Lord's slave. In 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 22, Paul says this to the people at Corinth. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. In other words, when he calls those of us, when we were in the bondage of sin, he frees us. And then he says, likewise, he who was called while free, in other words, not a slave in the social sense, 
That person is Christ's slave. And he says, you were bought with a price. So do not become slaves of men. In other words, do not revert back to the bondage of sin in the world, the bondage of sin in your flesh. Instead, he says, brethren, let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Namely, you were called now to be a slave of your master, your loving master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And frankly, this has to be the mindset of every Christian especially those leading the church in pastoral ministry. And this is what Paul wanted to leave behind to the elders there at Ephesus. He wanted them to understand this and follow his example. He was saying, in essence, to them, I want you to understand that you need to serve the Master, serve the Lord, not man. Fear Him, not your congregation. Can I make it a little more practical? Don't depend upon... Surveys and opinion polls to determine what you need to do. Rather, preach the word in season and out of season, when it's popular, when it's not. Don't run scared of false teachers and church bullies. Don't acquiesce to their threats. You serve the Lord, serve the Master. You answer to Him, not to them. You are His slave. You honor Him. You depend upon Him. To provide and to protect. And so sad. I, I know pastors and I, and I really pray for them and I feel for them. Because I know a lot of them are, are in very difficult situations. But I know pastors who frankly are scared of their congregations. And so they avoid any doctrines that might be considered divisive. And they're, they're constantly on duty. Constantly trying to straddle the fence on issues. Large passages that they won't even teach on. Always trying to, if I can put it this way, serve two masters. Do you see that? Sometimes they will say to me as we talk, what, well, what should I do? My response is choose which one you're going to serve. You're going to serve the Lord you're going to serve them. It reminds me of Joshua's challenge. You remember Joshua's challenge to the elders of Israel? He called him there at Shechem and there was this farewell address. He was an old man just before he died. Here's what he said in Joshua 24, 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And he went on to say, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. And then finally, he said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, each of you gathered here today have to make that choice. Who are you going to serve? You're going to serve yourself? Are you going to serve Satan, the God of this world? Or are you going to serve the Lord? If you choose to serve the Lord, of course, you're going to suffer in this life. It's inevitable. But you're going to be rewarded beyond your imagination in glory. I cannot leave this section without commenting briefly on the word humility. This is an interesting here. He, he says he served the Lord with all humility. And again, he wanted the elders to learn this well. And as I reflect upon it, as you just think through what the Bible has to say about humility, you see that humility and pride are as opposite as daylight is to dark. And if you think about it, like Satan, who can appear as an angel of light, so too can the darkest pride in our hearts shine forth in the full blaze of Christian humility. Some of the most hideously arrogant men I have ever known wear such a veneer of humility that only those that know them best could ever discern their wickedness. And because pride is so capable of disguising itself in humility. I'm quite certain that the counterfeit characterizes my life far more than the real deal. And frankly, it's for this reason I have no confidence even in my own assessment of myself, of my own heart. All I can do is simply rely upon and plead the grace and the blood of Christ to somehow plead my case before an omniscient God who alone can judge the thoughts and the intentions of a man's heart. You know, if we admit it, all of us at some level, and sometimes more often than not, love 
to serve ourselves. It's so easy to do things where in the back of our minds we're trying to draw attention to ourselves, and we want to get the credit. We want, like the Pharisees, to have the chief seats in certain areas of our life. We like to toot our own horn, or better yet, have somebody else toot it for us. But the real proof of humility, dear friends, has to be measured by examining the fruit of a man's life, the fruit of his ministry. You know, if you're going to say you're an apple tree, that is utterly meaningless unless the limbs of your life hang low with the delicious fruits of selfless sacrificial service. Fruits that others can taste. Others can see. They need to be the judge. So, Paul was a faithful shepherd. Secondly, a humble slave. Thirdly, he was a suffering servant. Notice verse 19. Serving the Lord, he says, with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Beloved, tears are to ministry what rain is to a black cloud. Any of you that have served the Lord any time understand this. You know, the realization... That most of those that I encounter with saving truth are going to reject it and die in their sins. That's a burden enough to bring a man to tears on a daily basis. Especially when they're your family. You know, Paul grieved over the rebellion of even his own kinsmen, the Jews. In Romans 9, verse 2, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And, you know, also just the the anguish, the sorrow over sinning saints. Those that are destroying their lives, as well as those self-deceived Counterfeit Christians that call him Lord, but you're quite certain they will never enter the kingdom. All of that is just a constant source of sorrow and tears. Paul understood this. In 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4, he said, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Remember when he was confronting them over their sin. What a burden that is. To watch people... In your church, your church family, consistently make the wrong choices that destroy their lives. And then you add to these the relentless battle against heretics that rise from inside the church. And by the way, he's going to go on to warn them about that very thing. To be on the alert for those kind of people. Yet another source of perpetual grief. Wolves in sheep's clothing. Predators in pulpits. Some of them in the church, some of them outside the church. Those that call themselves Christians, they claim to be servants of Christ. Philippians 3.18, Paul said, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And I find myself very often reading things, especially when I go into the Christian bookstore, some of the very best sellers. In fact, last week, one of the, the, the very best seller in the Christian bookstore was written by a man that could not possibly know the Lord Jesus Christ. A charlatan of charlatans. And I think, oh, what a tragedy. How many dear people that I know and love are going to read this garbage and be deceived by it? Then there are the ever-present church bullies and factious men and women Control freaks that slander and malign and cause divisions. I, divisions, I call them acid people, A-C-I-D. They are arrogant, controlling, ignorant, and divisive. Paul described them in 2 Corinthians 12. He said that they were a thorn in the flesh to him, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. The grammar there indicates that this was a constant, ongoing thing for him. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, 18 and 19, we, we read that every church is going to have them from time to time. And if that weren't enough for Paul, he had, as he says here, trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. 
I mean, it's bad enough, everything that I've just described, but now you've got your own kinsman trying to kill you. Not a pretty picture. In fact, we know in 2 Corinthians 2, he was so distraught, he grieved so deeply over some of these things in his life that at times he couldn't even function the way he wished he could. But yet, you know what? He never gave up. He never gave up. He never sought a better, more comfortable way. Let me put it a little different. He never developed a less offensive paradigm of ministry. Isn't that interesting? And had he done so, God would not have been in it. In fact, he said to Pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know, you want to ask yourself, do these things resonate in my heart? Does any of this really describe my life and my ministry? And beloved, if this is all just foreign to you and you live kind of in this Christian bubble here in Middle Tennessee or wherever you are as you listen to me this day, and, and, and your life is just kind of one of cotton candy ease, then you might want to examine yourself and say, you know what, am I really a slave of Christ or a slave of myself and the world? Do I fear man more than God? He was a faithful shepherd, a humble slave, a suffering servant, fourthly, a fearless preacher. Again, verse 20, you yourselves know, he says in verse 18, then you drop down to 20, he says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The term shrink, hupostello in the original language, means to retreat in fear, to draw back, to withhold, to cower, or to use the vernacular of our day, it means to wimp out. That make sense? Paul didn't do that. He's literally saying, I did not hold anything back in my preaching and in my teaching in my public proclamation or in my private counsel. I did not hold anything back for fear that it may be offensive. He just didn't do that. And again, he did this publicly as well as house to house. The public preaching and the private counsel. He got into the lives of those that he loved and he spoke the truth. Again, I talk with pastors from time to time that are terrified of their congregations. It's interesting, I was talking with a few not too long ago, and we agreed that there's the big five that many pastors have to avoid. Let me give you our terminology, the theological terms, and I'll explain it briefly. You have to avoid hermodiology, soteriology, eschatology, pneumatology, and ecclesiology. Those are the big five. Hermodiology is the doctrine of sin. Oh, don't step on any toes, and certainly don't deal with church discipline, or you're out of there. Can't talk about those things. You can't talk about soteriology. Boy, don't talk about the doctrine of salvation. Because as soon as you mention the word election or predestination, you've lost people who have the audacity to think that God creates people just so he can enjoy sending them to hell. So don't talk about any of that. And oh, don't talk about eschatology, because after all, nobody has a clue what the Bible means with any of that. And it just gets people all worked up. And don't talk about pneumatology, the doctrine of the Spirit of God, because after all, some people think that there just might be tongues and visions and all of this going on. And we certainly don't want to get people uncomfortable with a position of cessation or anything like that. And we don't want to talk about ecclesiology either, do we? The doctrine of the church how the church is to be governed, because everybody knows it's a democracy and everybody's got an equal voice and an equal vote. Well, you get the picture. By the way, if you don't teach on those things, you've cut out about three-fourths of the Bible. Instead, people want you to speak on what I call warm fuzziology. They want ticklology. Tickle my ears. Tell me what I want to hear. 
So for most churches, it's a social gospel. I've been to other churches where it's always evangelism. It can be Wednesday night with 30 people out there and you got, got some guy worked up in a sweat begging people to come forward to get saved. Amazing. Or it's prosperity, purpose or politics. And sometimes all of those mixed together. And beloved, if that's the case, if you're hearing me and you're in that kind of a congregation, I would submit to you that you are being banished to an island of spiritual infancy. You're going to lack discernment. You're going to be easily deceived. You're going to be bereft of power and your faith is going to be weak. Not Paul and frankly, not any faithful shepherd. And oh, I can hear it now. Oh, but pastor... If, if I do these types of things, if I speak these truths, people are going to leave. And my response is, yes, that may be so. You must realize that the back door is just as important as the front door. But you know what? Others are going to be transformed by the truth. Worse yet, they may ask me to leave. Well, so be it. If that's what God wants, then he is your master if you're his slave, slave and he is your master and he causes you to be kicked out of a church, then you know what? The master has another place for you to serve him. You know, you want to ask yourself, am I one that fears man? Galatians 1.10, I mentioned this earlier, Paul said, am I now seeking the favor of men? Or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Beloved, this needs to be an area of our life that we constantly examine. Because the fear of man indeed is a snare. So he was a faithful shepherd, a humble slave, a suffering servant, a fearless preacher. Finally, he was a zealous evangelist. And here now the focus is upon his ministry outside the church, more to unbelievers, whether Jew or Gentile. Notice verse 21. It says, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Two things, repentance and faith. You see, Paul preached a comprehensive gospel that disclosed the whole of God's will. In fact, later on in verse 27, he describes how he preached about the whole purpose of God. You don't just kind of pick a verse here and pick a verse there in some topical way and avoid all the things that might make people uncomfortable. John Stott spoke of Paul's work and said that his evangelism was in-depth and that he shared all possible truth with all possible people in all possible ways. I love that. If I can put it a little different, he didn't preach purpose, prosperity, and politics. What did he preach? It says here he preached repentance. Repentance. Metanoia in the original language. It means to change the mind and purpose. It means to turn from one direction and to go in another. It means to turn around. Now, may I remind you, dear friends, that repentance is very different than reformation. Repentance is not merely a resolution to do better, to kind of turn over a new leaf. Repentance is very different than even contrition. Contrition is feeling sorry for sin and its consequences. That's not what repentance is all about. A lot of people will feel sorry for what they've done and never repent. Repentance is very different even than penance, I hope you understand. The idea of performing some works assigned by some priest or, or some cleric in order to help remove the effects or mitigate the temporal punishments of sin. Beloved, repentance biblically is a voluntary change in a sinner empowered by the Holy Spirit of God by which a person turns from his sin and toward God. That's what Paul preached. That's what he called people to. You see, genuine repentance involves the totality of man. It involves his intellect. It requires a knowledge of the truth 
regarding his sin and the Savior. It involves the emotions where one develops a hatred for what God hates and a love for what he loves. And a genuine love even for the truth, which the natural man is going to consider to be utter folly. It even involves the will. It's a change of direction, a change of purpose, a decisive determination to seek pardon and to seek cleansing. It is an inward resolve to allow the Holy Spirit to accomplish his purposes in me so that I can demonstrate fruits worthy of repentance. But I want you to notice in verse 21, he says, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, faith is trusting in Christ alone for salvation, and it also encompasses the totality of man. It requires an involvement of the intellect. You have to have knowledge of the truth. You have to have a conscious understanding of the object of your faith. It involves emotional assent, a joyous response that celebrates having been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of Christ. It celebrates being rescued and delivered from eternal condemnation. And it also involves the volitional part of man, whereby we have now an act of the will, where we trust in the finished, redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation and for our safekeeping. This is faith. And I want to hasten to add, faith is not what saves a man. It is not the act of faith that saves a man even when that faith is focused on the correct object. But rather, it is the object of that faith that saves. You've got to remember that God the Father, who has sent His Son and ministered the gospel through the Spirit, it is He who responds to the act of faith and justifies the believer. Spurgeon even said something that I found very insightful. He put it this way, quote, Repentance is the result of an unperceived faith. A result of an unperceived faith. He went on to say, when a man repents of sin, he does inwardly believe in a measure, although he may not think so. There is such a thing as latent faith, although it yields the man no conscious comfort. It may be doing something even better for him, for it may be working in him truthfulness of hope engulf them, lest they repent. Lord, we pray that you would accomplish these things by the power of your spirit. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.